Hello, and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, celebrating recent work by Roosevelt Montas, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on February 2nd, 2022, to discuss Montas's recently published book, Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Roosevelt Montas is Senior Lecturer in American Studies and English at Columbia University. His dissertation, Rethinking America, Abolitionism and the Antebellum Transformation of the Discourse of National Identity, won Columbia University's 2004 Bancroft Award. He is the director of the Center for American Studies Freedom and Citizenship Program in collaboration with the Double Discovery Center. Previously, Roosevelt Montas was a student and teacher in Columbia University's College Corps curriculum, also called the Columbia Corps. He spent 10 years as an administrator there. He was born in a rural mountain village in the Dominican Republic and came to New York just before his 12th birthday, not speaking any English, with his mother and his older brother. He attended public school and then found himself at Columbia University as a freshman. And this is where our story begins. People who have reviewed the book have found the book hard to summarize. If you had to say one thing about it, it'll probably be that the book is fundamentally a defense of liberal education. The book is as composed of three strands, and one of those strands is autobiographical. That part of the book reads like a memoir, where I meditate on how my life has unfolded and the role that liberal education has played in it, in making me the person that I am. That is how liberal education has played out in this particular life. The second strand of the book consists of a discussion of four authors that have had a big impact on me. It's an exposition, a general exposition of their ideas, an argument about why they matter, how these writers explore ideas and questions that can illuminate the life of any individual. That is how how these, these writers raise and clarify human dilemmas that every person faces and that every person has to resolve in his or her own life. The authors I, I discussed are, are St. Augustine, Plato, with a a little bit of Aristotle, Sigmund Freud, and Mahatma Gandhi. Then there is a third strand of the book, and that is a polemical strand. It's a look at the shape and character of American higher education and the place of liberal education in it. I make the basic argument that the modern American higher education environment is essentially hostile to the practice of liberal education. The kind of liberal education, the practice of liberal education that transformed my own life, and which I argue throughout the book has the power to transform the lives of young people today, a kind of education that is especially relevant and important to young people like me, who come from low-income households, who are the first in their families to attend college, broadly what we call marginalized communities. And maybe I'll say just a, a quick word about elaborating on each of those strands. First is this autobiographical strand as, as some of you will know, I spent many years, 10, as uh, administrator of the Center for the Core Curriculum. From that position, I advocated. Uh, that's where I became an evangelist for liberal education. I saw my position at Columbia as an opportunity to advance 
advocate for this kind of education. And one thing that I was always reluctant to do during that period was to talk about my own life, talk about my own trajectory. Part of that reluctance comes from my distaste for the stereotypes associated with the immigrant story, with the rise of someone from poverty and marginality through education. And it's not that these things aren't true about me, but that I have been averse to turning those aspects of my life into an identity. The fear of being held up as a model, as an example, makes me want to throw up. And, and I have been tempted to screw up just to avoid that horrible fate. But in writing this book, something kind of got unstuck in me. And, and it became clear that if I was going to make a full throttle entire case for the meaning of liberal education, I was going to have to look inside myself and talk about the ways in which this education helped me orient myself in the world, helped me figure out my way, how my complicated life story was clarified, was it how, how my education helped me put together a whole sense of myself from lots of different parts. And those of you who have or who will look at the book, I you know, was born in the Dominican Republic and in a rural mountain village in the Dominican Republic and came to New York just before my 12th birthday, two days before my 12th birthday, not speaking English with my mother who had been here a few years and my older brother. We were in some ways a typical Dominican immigrant family, poor, uh, with, with few resources and uh, had a very, very hard time. I went to public schools, found myself at Columbia as a freshman. And that's kind of where the story begins of my encounter with formal liberal education and what it meant for me to be reading St. Augustine, to be reading Plato, to be reading Aristotle and being in a, in a literature humanities classroom in this, in this first year intense seminar where we're looking at these books, we are grappling with those questions. I'm listening to my peers. I'm listening to my professors. I'm reading the books, the ways in which all that came together to help me make sense of my life and my trajectory through college into graduate school and as a faculty member, how my life has been altered and shaped by ongoing conversations with these books, ongoing conversations with people around these books. A word about the, my choice of, of authors. In some sense, it is idiosyncratic. In some sense, these are writers who happen to have had an outside impact on my life at the moment that I encounter them. But there is something about them that probably helped that, which is that they're all concerned and devoted to self-exploration. All of them have a drive towards examination of the self. They all are models of how to fulfill Socrates' injunction, injunction about living an examined life, right? Socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living. These are all authors who exemplify and model the examined life. One other thing about my choice of authors is that in treating them, I model non-expertise. My training is in pre-Civil War American intellectual history and literature. None of these authors are, 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 are figures that I have engaged in a scholarly, professional way. I, I teach them, and in that way, it's, it's, it's professional, but I, I don't have access to the languages in which they wrote. I'm not immersed in the secondary literature or in the scholarly debates around them. I read them, and I teach them as works that speak to our fundamental humanity. So part of what my treatment of those authors do is to model the kind of non-expert general treatment under which these authors can be meaningful and transformative for a non-scholar. And lastly, a word about the polemical aspect of the book. I argue that the structure of the contemporary university organized around departmental pigeonholes, which correspond roughly to academic disciplines, have choked the possibility of liberal education. That is the dominance of disciplinary specialization 
has squeezed liberal education out of the curriculum. And today there is very little distinction between the specialized pursuit of the liberal arts, the kind of thing you might do in graduate school if you study in the liberal arts, you know, literature, classics, or philosophy, or even in the major, which is a specialized approach to the study of the traditional liberal arts. So that has been conflated with actual general education, the kind of education that is appropriate to any individual, not just to somebody who wants to study as a scholar the liberal arts. I also point to the dominance of the research ideal in the university. That is the ideal that approaches the task of the university as the discovery, codification, dissemination of new knowledge. That powerful dominant idea in the university, which has produced the extraordinary breathtaking advances in, in science and, and other areas of knowledge that have given us the modernity. That ideal, when transposed to the humanities, to the examination, exploration of questions that are vitally central, vitally important to the humanity and the cultivation of every individual. When that research ideal is transposed to that area, it doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, those, the, the kind of exploration that those areas dwell on are not, the kinds of questions they dwell on are not susceptible to the investigation, accumulation, dissemination of knowledge that organizes the rest of the research university. We don't know better today the nature of justice, just because we have had 2,000 years, 2,500 years since Plato wrote the Republic. We don't understand today the, the nature of political power, where to draw the line between individual liberty and collective responsibility. These things are not susceptible to simple accumulation of knowledge. So the research ideal has been so dominant in the university as to force a kind of specialization within the humanities discipline that has been crippling to the project of general education. And lastly, I address the kind of epistemological developments within the humanities themselves that have challenged the very values and views of human nature that undergird a project of liberal education. Next, we'll hear a response from Turkuler Isiksel, an associate professor of political science at Columbia University. Turkuler is the author of Europe's Functional Constitution, a theory of constitutionalism beyond the state, a monograph published in 2016 by the Oxford University Press Constitutional Theory Series. She is currently working on a book on the theory and practice of corporate personhood. In her response, Turkuler offers her thoughts on the arguments in Roosevelt's book and quotes a response on the Columbia Corps by a previous student in the program. Later, I'll invite three previous Corps students, each of whom influenced Turkuler's thinking, to talk about their experience. Now, here's Turkuler Isiksel. When Roosevelt announced the imminent publication of his book, I was delighted for more than the usual reasons having to do with celebrating the accomplishment of a treasured colleague. As I exclaimed to him at the time, I felt that I needed this book. My students needed this book. The world needed this book. The book makes a compelling, deeply personal, but also informative case for the value and indeed necessity of a liberal education. But when I say I needed this book, I have to admit that I came at it with a selfish need to answer a very particular question. And I'm going to quote from the book. My question is whether, and here the quote begins, there is a compelling case for keeping the Western tradition at the center of general education, at least in the West, end of quote. So that's an affirmative sentence by 
uh, Roosevelt that I'm turning into a question, especially at a time when our universities are enriched by the presence of a more diverse group of students than ever, and when they profess ambitions to become global universities. So my question is, why read these books? I guess I was a little surprised that the question was not central to this book, or at least it was answered mostly implicitly. And I want to use my time to invite him to respond to it more explicitly or failing that to nudge him into writing another book, the next book. So let's face it, we in the Columbia core and my own corner of it, contemporary civilization, which I've been teaching for some years, we have a syllabus that can't be decolonized. If Aristotle, Locke, and Mill are irredeemably complicit in the making of today's injustices, and I think it's pretty undeniable that they are, and if continuing to teach their books as part of a mandatory curriculum while relegating quote-unquote non-Western masterpieces to elective components of the curriculum perpetuates oppression, perpetuates the notion that this is the pinnacle of human achievement, then there's really not much left to say in favor of a program like the core curriculum at Columbia as it's currently framed. My students say that being required to read books that don't reflect their experience, the experience of people like them, is a way of extending the grip of the cold dead hand of the past into the future. And that's the indictment that weighs most heavily on my shoulders whenever I sign up to teach a year of CC. As one of my students from last year, Will Osager, put it in a very thoughtful discussion post, quote, the enduring questions this class aims to tackle are culturally agnostic. And so it's not self-evident why Western literature is the right lens to approach these questions, end of quote. And Will added that although there's nothing inherently Western about many of the ideas that we encounter, the curatorial choices imply the most important answers to these questions. The books worth requiring originated in the West. I invite you to argue with Will's logic. I tried for about a year and I only managed to make a dignified exit because the semester ended. But if anyone wants to watch me die on this hill, I would say the following. The more I think about this, the more it seems to me that the problem maybe has less to do with having a required core course that centers on the quote unquote Western tradition. And in fact, a large part of our curriculum is understanding the development of an idea of the West and problematizing the notion of the West, of civilization, et cetera. And it has to do more with what we mean when we say teach these texts to our undergraduates. Because, of course, the core classroom is not a group of pious people studying a sacred text where we try to wrap our limited mortal faculties around the divine truth that has been revealed to us. If you've never been in a core classroom, I assure you, there is no reverence, no piety, and nothing is sacred. We never pretend that the epistemic status of these texts is comparable to an organic chemistry textbook or an electronic circuitry textbook. The books themselves, of course, sometimes do claim authority of this sort, uh, see under Hobbes. And frankly, if you're not claiming to be conveying a truth, why write a book? But that sort of claim to authority is catnip for our students. It's a provocation to prove the author wrong. The text is a great but rather sluggish horse, and students are a swarm of gadflies, to paraphrase Socrates. Now, there's one line of Roosevelt's book that really I grappled with and thought about for many days, and I finally decided I disagree with it. And I know it's unfair to give that one line so much airtime at the expense of everything I found illuminating in the book, but I'm going to do it anyway. Roosevelt writes, in what way are they right is almost always a more productive and a more difficult question than in what way are they wrong, end of quote. Now, I think Roosevelt might be right that in what way are they right is a more difficult question to answer, but I doubt it's more productive, at least for pedagogical purposes. So when students arrive demoralized, 
and aggrieved because the core does not speak to their experience, does not reflect their heritage, and worse, that it reflects their experience and heritage to irrelevance. I welcome them back into the smoke-filled back room of my pedagogy, and I ask them whether they wouldn't like to discover the origins of these errors, these injustices, to pinpoint where it all went wrong for themselves. We don't start with the presumption that what we are about to receive is knowledge, and anyone who starts with that presumption quickly becomes disappointed in week two, to be precise, when they encounter Plato saying, justice is doing one's own work and not meddling with what isn't one's own. There goes liberal education. Rather, I tell my students, we can start from the presumption that this is a catalog of errors. And the problem is that generations of people have foolishly taken it for knowledge. Now, I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that I don't necessarily hold this simplistic view of the whole thing. I say this because I want to give my students the freedom to be aggrieved and skeptical and demoralized. All I want is for them not to be dismissive. So if I can get past the objection that Socrates was just another privileged white male, we would find in Socrates the inspiration for speaking truth to power, defying the oppressive conventions of your society. If you pay attention, he's going to train you to be a radical and a subversive. And of course, academics are very practiced at reading texts against the grain in this way, but students often are not because they come to us from a, a K through 12 model of teaching where teachers and textbooks are the source of truth and that they're supposed to imbibe and recite. But once we abandon this model, I think, we do take some of the sting out of the dead white male's critique, or at least I console myself in that way, that once students discover that they can turn a text in like the CIA sense of the word, wrest it away from its traditional associations and make it their ally, that's a powerful thing. To be frank, the idea that I was entitled to see my personal experience reflected in the books that I was being assigned to read in my education is an idea that didn't occur to me at any point in my education. If you grew up as I did in the quote unquote East, it's hard to break out of the sense that your whole life's purpose is trying to catch up to the quote unquote the West. And things like questioning the ethnocentrism of our notions of human excellence, et cetera, came much later for me. So this is one of the most important things I learned from my students is that reading these books because they have shaped Western civilization is sort of a, a, a crappy reason for reading them. Instead, the part of Roosevelt's book that really resonated with me, and this is really my last point, and one of the reasons why I cannot recommend it quite highly enough is his insight that reading these books as part of an intellectual and ethical pursuit is to take ownership of them. I deeply identified with Roosevelt's non-sarcastic, non-defensive, non-ironic engagement with these books. I like to think that um, in my own earnest effort to understand and teach them, I have made these books my own. So for someone to tell me that the core doesn't reflect my experience as a Middle Eastern woman implies that I'm ensnared in a sort of false consciousness when I claim ownership of Plato, to think of Plato as part of my intellectual identity. I don't have a problem with being under the sway of false consciousness, like who isn't? My problem is with the fact that this overlaps so neatly with the white supremacist position that the West has rightful claim to these books and nobody else does. Why do the white supremacists work for them 
by renouncing my claim to this tradition. And more importantly, I think the idea of assigning a heritage to ideas sort of misunderstands the nature of ideas. And here I take my cue from Kwame Anthony Apia, who wrote in a 2016 essay for The Guardian that I assigned to my students. Ideas are not like family heirlooms, not like land, not like property, certainly not like DNA. They're mine if I find them meaningful and I use them to shape my values, my life choices, my relationships. Not mine if I don't. But they're also mine in another way because they shape my values, life choices, and relationships in ways that I didn't choose because they helped to make the world that I live in in all of its terrifying cruelty and injustice and its splendor and its contradictions. I had the opportunity to speak with William Osahari, to whom our last speaker, Turkulair, referred in her comments, and also with another student of Columbia's core curriculum, Genesis Vanegas Calvo. William graduated from Columbia School of Engineering and Applied Science in 2021 and works now as a software engineer. Genesis is a rising junior majoring in political science. William and Genesis both took Columbia's Contemporary Civilization course. Genesis also took two other core classes, Literature and Humanities and Global Core, a requirement asking students to engage with a variety of world civilizations. First, I asked William to expand on his comments you heard Turkulair read earlier. Let's listen. What I was just trying to capture there was just the fact that, I mean, a lot of these questions, they are not, it's not like related to like Western culture. If the focus is on the questions, then why are all the texts by Western thinkers? This is suggesting a bunch of things. Is it that these questions have only been explored by Western thinkers? Or is there like a selective bias in the thinkers that have been considered on these questions? That's two. Another one could be, well, you can't pick everyone, right? You do have to have some kind of selection criteria to sort of decide these are the thinkers we're going to explore and analyze. So I think what would not, what is not self-evident is what exactly is the selection criteria? Is it the degree to which these thinkers explored or, or analyzed the questions? Is it the answers that they gave? Is it the influence that the texts had on subsequent thinkers? That is the part that is not self-evident. The fact that what exactly is the selection criteria? No matter what the selection criteria is, the bigger problem is it's going to be based on some on some kind of value system, right? Which is like no matter the criteria you pick, how, how can you justify it versus another selection criteria? Then we start getting into discussions about, well, like, you know, like it's, it's really difficult to sort of justify one selection criteria over the other. And one way we would do this is maybe perhaps think about what are we trying to achieve with the core curriculum? What is the goal, right? So the, we can use the goal to determine what the selection criteria should be. Again, if we're talking about popularity, meaning like popular ideas, we want to give students a historical account of these are the popular ideas over the years on these enduring questions, then that's a completely different thing, right? And I guess that itself too is not self-evident. What is the goal of the core? I asked Genesis what she thought when she first read through the syllabus for her contemporary civilization class and whether, when she was still a prospective student at Columbia, core curriculum requirements played any role in her decision to come to Columbia. Take a listen. First reading through the syllabus, I was like, oh yeah, this is the literary canon. This is, these are the texts 
When I first read them, though, I was kind of appalled. I did not agree with the ideas at all. And I remember my very first response in the class was basically arguing about why Plato was the worst. And a lot of the class was that, just saying, hey, these authors are kind of ignoring this, or these authors aren't considering this thing. I think that everyone writes, everyone's truth is kind of informed by their uh, experiences. And obviously, the experiences of a college student in 2020 are not the same experiences as Plato. So bringing in a lot of contemporary events, bringing in our own upbringing was really fruitful, I think, in the class. Uh, Being able to converse the text not only in their own, not only within their limits, but also bringing in things from the real world was my favorite part of the class. I was looking forward to reading them. I was really, I kind of always saw these texts, but I never engaged with them on my own. I was looking forward to it and definitely conversation, definitely looking forward to the conversation because I think that that's where we can get the most out of them. When I asked both William and Genesis whether they thought the solution to criticism of core curricula and liberal education was to rethink entirely the academic canon, that is, whether or not Socrates needs to be or deserves to be rescued, they both had relatively similar answers. When we say something like, can you rescue Socrates? This is an individual to individual basis for answers. See, when there's a question at hand and you don't know the answer to it and you're hungry for answers, you will look everywhere for that answer. Whether it's from a white male author or not, you will consider the answer because you know, you're, you're, you're looking for the truth. You have this question, this burning question, and you're looking for the answer to the question. And so you will consider every option possible, every available option to you. That's not to say that we should just only read Plato and Socrates, but there is a reason why people have been reading them for all this time, right? There's a reason why. So at least find out why before you move on, right? What questions are they tackling with and what answers are they providing? Our focus is not on whether it happens to be uh a white male or or not a white male. The focus is primarily the questions, right? And to the degree that we can keep the conversation focused on that, then that that is the grounding for having a discussion about revamping the core. I think that there is a place for them. I think that ideas should never just be discarded. And again, it's productive to engage even with the parts that one disagrees with, or even with parts that might seem a little outdated, might seem like, okay, why are we studying this guy again? In an ideal world, everything could be studied, right? I think that with CC in particular, it would be beneficial to diversify it a little. Of course, it's a tremendously hard task. And to decide which text to chuck out, I think that there's value in a lot of them. And I wish that everything could just exist in the same one. And that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Roosevelt Montas and all of the panelists who were present at the event. A special thank you to Will Asahare and Genesis Vanegas Calvo for their thoughtful and nuanced responses as well. My thanks to you for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Roosevelt Montas. The title of his newest book is Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.